Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thanks for joining me. What would you do if you were the target of a Florida man, or in this case, a Florida woman headline? You'd probably want to retreat and disappear for a while, at least until another headline came along so the spotlight can shift to someone else. That thought comes into play in Deb Rogers' debut novel, Florida Woman, a book I admittedly devoured due to its unpredictability, intrigue, and plot twists. It's about one woman's journey to redemption through her work at a monkey sanctuary where both animal and human behavior are strange. Jamie, the main character, is from Florida. She grew up on the beach, thrives in humidity, has survived more hurricanes than she can count, and now she has a requisite headline to her name after going viral for an outrageous crime she never intended to commit. But when the chance to escape viral infamy and imminent jail time by taking a community service placement at Atlas, a wildlife shelter for rescued monkeys, it seems just like the fresh start she needs, until it's not. Something sinister stirs in the woods, and secrets lurk among the three charismatic women who run the shelter and affectionately take Jamie under their wing. At night, she hears distant monkey screams, and the staff performs cryptic lakeside sacrifices to honor Atlas. What happens to be a beautiful, utopian animal sanctuary is now dangerous and untamed. As Jamie ventures deeper into the offbeat world of Atlas, trying to survive the summer, an even stranger Florida headline emerges. The SoFlo Weird team met up with Rogers at the Miami Book Fair. Deb has an interesting background. She's been an award-winning blogger, a statewide policymaker, and a nationally recognized victim advocate. She's traveled from Pensacola to Key West to improve the state's response to violent crime, worked as a wilderness schoolteacher in Crescent City for five years, and now happily lives and writes in St. Augustine. These experiences have influenced some of the very relatable character traits and plot lines in her debut novel. Where did you get the idea for Florida Woman? Well, I live in Florida. So, you know, my daily life as both a teacher, a social worker, and in different jobs that I've had, or just living in this glorious state, um, been exposed to people who live their lives out loud and on the beach and in very little clothing and in all the ways that, you know, Floridians are a little bit different than the rest of the country. And I've been always fascinated by how people make sense of all the ways that we live. I've also, you know, been on the internet for the last few decades and have seen how the rest of the world interprets us and interprets our myths and misinterprets us. Yes. Has this view of us that's weirder than we really are, but also doesn't really understand how weird we are in the right way. So all those things kind of led to me working with um, the story. And the setting is important to me. I've lived in the woods in central Florida. I love that part of Florida. I'm thrilled to be here in Miami. This city is vibrant and exciting. And I've lived in Tallahassee where I worked on policy work and a whole different vibe is there. I now live in St. Augustine on the beach, which is fantastic. But my heart is really in the deep, dang palmetto forests of Florida, which feel very old and very special to me. And so that setting and that story just kind of came together into Florida Woman. Now, considering you're not originally from Florida, I felt you really captured the Florida essence in this book. Tell us your background, where you're from, and what drew you to this state. 
Oh, that's a great question. Well, I grew up in St. Louis, and I also grew up rurally in central Illinois. Um, and I've lived in the Ozarks for a time. But I moved to Florida in my 20s because I don't know why I was drawn here, but I was drawn here to restart my life. And I think that's why a lot of people end up in Florida. It is a place of rediscovery, of reinvention of yourself. So in reinventing myself here in Florida, I have managed to meet many other people who end up drifting farther south and reinventing themselves, sometimes out of you know, difficult reasons to escape their past, or sometimes out of exciting reasons to come here where, you know, there's a reason Disney was built here. It, there, there's opportunity in the emptiness here. There's opportunity to create and be creative. So those are the things that drew me to Florida, as well as just the natural beauty of this state and how we can live it and love it year round. So is that is that a way in which Florida inspired you? Absolutely. I mean, and I could never go back. I like right now we have this glorious sunny fall and my friends are suffering under a snowstorm. I could never go back. Like to me this is this is the way my brain and heart sing is to be able to be outside year round with other people with natural world. I love Florida. Now, I read that you traveled all over the state. And yes, you mentioned before that you spent like five years in the wilderness. Did you draw upon those experiences for this story? Absolutely. Because, you know, and that's a place where I turn to in my own life and also in programs for others. You can heal in the woods. You can challenge yourself in the woods. And in Florida woods in particular, where, you know, there are many different creatures who really don't want you to be there. That's a specific type of challenge and and grandeur and beauty that inspired me deeply. So living in definitely living in Central Florida, and I lived without air conditioning, without heat. You know, just experiencing Florida in all of its wonder and terribleness um, definitely inspired me to a story where someone would need to challenge herself to survive. And she does. Jamie does. I that's like in the first or something chapter where she. It's so hot. <laughs> I got that. From the onset of the storyline, as I was reading it, I was wondering if it was based on any truths, like, I mean, like a real monkey sanctuary and a real Florida man headline. Like, I think I even tried to look up <laughs> Atlas. So was any of it based on truths? Yeah, yeah. Though I would say a composite. Let's say a composite. Okay. You know, um, there's definitely real life situations that are very similar in Florida with the need for wildlife rehabilitation and with the preponderance of us not really greatly handling yet. What are we going to do with the fact of, in specific, the, the monkeys that have been habituating themselves and growing in tribes around the around the state? You know, there are. are her environment is so hospitable to all kinds of wildlife, including right. boa constrictors and monkeys and gators. And we have to make peace with that as well as it provides a great way for people to own exotics that maybe aren't going to survive in their backyard in Nebraska. But you can have a tiger in Florida year round. So we do have a high um, incidence of exotics and the trafficking of exotics. All of those things I definitely was able to research directly. But the book is is fiction. The book is a composite or drawn upon different different experiences and an inventive story. Yeah. I interviewed Missy Williams from the Dania Beach Vervet Project. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you know, of course, ever yeah, met her. Wonderful. Yeah, The monkeys are just wonderful. But they were very adaptable. Like I see that their survival is based on being able to just adapt to their surroundings. Although 
I don't know the fate of what's going on there or if they're dying off or anything, but that's right. initially what I thought of. Like, I'm like, wow, maybe exactly. this is really a monkey sanctuary. Exactly. So that's why I kind of went yeah. down that little rabbit hole. Well, it's so true. And that, and it is important to know that there are people who want to do something about in a very good way. But as anything happens with any kind of nonprofit, you can't assume that because it's a nonprofit, there every intention is good or or our yeah. ability to execute, execute that great idea is is good i think that happened has happened to me a lot of times in my life or in my workforce or in myself you know you have a great idea and the reality is not mm, doesn't right. come and i really enjoyed playing with those ideas as well let's get into the character a little bit now this story it goes past the headline after the 15 minutes of viral infamy and goes into redemption and second chances and the I felt in the intense desire for acceptance. Tell us about the main characters. Tell me about Jamie first. So Jamie is sort of a lost character. She hasn't found herself yet for a lot of reasons. And I, I'm really fascinated by how we make sense of ourselves and how we find ourselves throughout our lives. And we meet Jamie when she's in a particularly difficult time because she has been waiting for her family who've abandoned her to sort of come back before she starts her life. And I think the journey that she takes in the book is in somewhat reckoning with that, that her family might never come back for her. So she's been sort of abandoned by her family. They've gone on and she's left alone trying to make sense of her life, but she doesn't have an economic advantage in order to do that. She, So she's working jobs that aren't supportive to her and she's really struggling. And she also hasn't built a community around herself, which is why she's pretty vulnerable to this existing community of Atlas that she stepped into and she sees it as exciting and offering friendship and meaning and work and even and a livelihood. So all of those things about Atlas, which is the community that runs the, the wildlife refuge, are appealing to her as well as the charismatic leader of Sari. Yeah, I see how she gets drawn in like that quickly. And again, like you said, in real life, you can see how that can that's happen definitely to happened to me and it's happened to people I know where at vulnerable times of your life, you're very fortunate if good people step in and help you construct meaning and community exactly. and a way out of your grief or whatever it is. And we're also really vulnerable at those times. And we can look back and say, wow, that I might have seen that that was not such a healthy situation had I not been in a bad shape when I entered it or when that person entered my life and took advantage of it. We can all relate to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, this, this book was very relatable. Florida Woman was unpredictable and mysterious and a little bit eerie with plot twists. It just, like I said, just when you think you know what's going to happen or you want to predict what's going to happen, you gave it a, a good twist. Was the writing process for you organic? Did this story kind of tell you how to tell the story a little bit? It did. And, you know, it's so funny. In the past, I know I've heard that as writing advice is to get to know your characters and then they'll tell you the story. And I don't know that I fully believed it until uh, this book, because these these characters really did wrestle with me and tell me what was going to happen even and often surprised me. And I know that sounds crazy, but it really is true. Was there something that was in there that you had to pull out? Oh, sure. It, it definitely went through several editing processes in order to streamline it to make, you know, to be, to make sense. There are definitely um, places where I would have loved to weave in more things, but you need to let the story be, have a good structure. What's next for you? And would that be Florida centric story? I, I, I can't imagine right now not writing about Florida because it's just so much a part of who I am and how I experience 
the world and out, um, what fascinates me. There's just so much to Florida. So many Floridas. I mean, there's just so much. And right now, I'm my second novel I'm working on is uh, focuses on some other myths that I didn't get to explore in in the Florida woman story, including the Fountain of Youth, which is just fascinating to me about how those myths and stories are pervasive and a part of a part of Florida. Let's just back up a second because I don't think I know your whole background. So tell me about your background and what you've done before diving into writing. Yeah, I am I am not an MFA writing track person <laughs> at all. I'm the opposite of that. I am just a person who has always loved writing and loved stories, but never was had that as my sole goal in life and never had that as a career path. What I have is like many other people, which is a hodgepodge homemade quilt of a past where I've done a lot of things that interested me and have built who I am. And um, and those things included being a wilderness school teacher, a social worker, an alternative school teacher, a um, policymaker in um, violence against women uh, issues, including domestic violence and sexual assault. That's when I would uh, work all around the state trying to strengthen the sexual assault response programs in different communities from, you know, from the Keys to the Panhandle policy on the statewide level. Then I drifted into freelance writing, grant writing, uh, freelance editing, and that sort of thing, which finally did give me the time to tell some stories that have been percolating and moving. But I, you know, was not a conference, and I've worked in different blogging or online communities as far as just, you know, uh, writing and editing. But I, I didn't have an MFA or connections or an agent or a facility in New York, Literati, any of that. So I'm really an outsider. This is my debut novel. I'm so happy to get to share it, but I'm really a publishing outsider, <laughs> uh, late-blooming debut author that I am. You did, a, you did a fantastic job, and just by listening to your background, I can see that hodgepodge in this story. Yeah. This was a very good, very good novel. I devoured it and like, I think three days. So I encourage my listeners to get Florida woman. It was wonderful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah. How do people follow you? I'm on Twitter at Deb on the rocks and also on Instagram, uh, Deb on the rocks. And I have a website where they can learn more about what I'm doing or where I'm going. Deb Rogers, com. That was Deb Rogers talking about her debut novel, Florida Woman. Now, if you're the true SoFlo weirdo that I know you all are, I urge you to get this book. It's a really good read. If you want more information on Deb or to purchase the book, we'll have links on our website at SoFloWeird.com. Next is a story by archaeologist Bob Carr. You may remember him in our Time Slips episode. When Bob is not busy on an excavation or analyzing artifacts, he's also an author and has just finished a novel called Python Conspiracy. It's inspired by true events about two scientists who joined forces to save the Everglades from invasive plant species, pythons, and evil developers while also preserving the sacred Miami Circle. It's another fascinating read that will be released soon. In the meantime, here's a short story he wrote called Conk Chowder. Danny and his college buddy Todd had picked Conk K for their spring break. Ignoring the more popular Nassau, they decided that a week of fishing and boating was the way to go. 
They flew into Abaco, and it was only a short taxi ride to the ferry. Todd, look at this place, said Danny, standing on the ferry dock. It's beautiful turquoise seas, better than Nassau with all those tourists. I can't wait to start fishing, said Todd, and eating lobster. And don't forget the conch chowder, said Danny. The ferry ride to Conk Cay was only a 20-minute trip. They were the only passengers. Standing on the Conk Cay dock was a thin, tall black man. It was hard to estimate his age. His close-cropped hair and fine features suggest a vigorous 30-something, but the graying hair on his temples reveal a man in his late 40s, maybe even 50. He extends his hand to help them on the dock. Welcome to Conk Cay. I'm Kendall McCain. We're glad to be here. It's a big change from New York, said Danny, shaking Kendall's hand. I've heard you're the best bone fishing guide in the Bahamas. I'm your man. Your cart is parked behind me. I'll show you the way to your cottage. You're staying at the Mahogany Bay Villa? Right. And who's the quiet guy, said Kendall. That's Todd. Todd gave him a smile and a tip of his baseball cap. He don't say much, does he, said Kendall. Kendall loads their luggage on the golf cart. Do you mind if we stop and get some beer, said Danny. No problem, just follow me. The little grocery store in New Bristol is the only grocery store on Conk Cay. It's on Royal Street, a lingering namesake of British rule before the Bahamas became independent. The town was settled in 1783 when the Loyalists fled from the American colonies and were resettled in the Bahamas. New Bristol was one of their first towns. Skillfully crafted with wood reflecting the shipbuilding traditions of the first settlers, it was a quaint version of a New England town that today would be on the National Register of Historic Sites. The grocery store had been operated by the McCain family for over a hundred years. Painted a bright blue with large windows and hurricane shutters, the small wooden sign on the door read open. Behind the counter is a man who looks to be in his 60s. His creamy white skin seemed unaffected by the harsh Bahamian sunlight, almost as if he'd never been outside. He wore a long-sleeved white shirt and dark blue pants, but what was most conspicuous was a large hump on his back, stretching his shirt upward like a balloon ready to burst. How can I help you, said grocer Edwin McCain. Danny said, where's your beer? In the back refrigerator down that aisle. And we need some bread and bologna, said Todd. We have it all, second aisle. Danny encounters an older woman placing groceries at the back of the store. She's heavy, obese in fact, but what rivets his attention is the large bump on her back, even larger than the man at the front. Danny pulls out two six packs of the local beer from the refrigerator and turns to the woman. Excuse me, do you have any conch chowder? The woman barely looks up, seemingly enraptured by the cans of sardines she's placing on the shelf. Not today. We're all sold out. Maybe the fishermen will bring some conch in on Monday when the weather settles down. You got to use what you got when you get it. Danny returns to the counter and pays for the groceries and jumps into the golf cart. Gee, that's quite a couple, said Danny. Kendall smiles, a wide-tooth-filled grin. Now you've met our town's most outstanding citizens. They're both hunchbacked. Husband and wife, said Danny. Nah, brother and sister. The McCain family were our first white settlers. But your name is McCain, too. Kendall laughs, his smile even wider than before. Ain't no relation. I have their name because my ancestors were their slaves. 
Well, that's a revolting fact, said Todd. We never revolted. We were emancipated, said Kendall, laughing. You see, that McCain family goes way back. They're descendants of loyalists. They came here after the American Revolution. They brought their slaves and everything they could carry to start a plantation, just like what they had in America. But plantation life don't work so well here. Too much sand, no good soil. So they started fishing to survive. Now that first McCain had a son, Benjamin, that takes a love to the sea. He takes his boat out every day and always finds a fish. The story goes that one day while conking, he spots a mermaid. A mermaid? That's ridiculous, said Danny. That's the story told here for generations. I heard it when I was a boy when my father passed it on to me. Benjamin tells his father that he saw the mermaid coming out of a giant conch. She was so beautiful with flowing golden hair and skin like a white pearl and not a stitch of clothing. <laughs> I like that part, said Todd. He liked her too. He took her to the bay next to his house and every night he slept on the beach to be with her. Kendall arrives at the cottage. It is small, only 200 feet from the beach, situated between two Australian pine trees. Kendall points to the boat docked at the pier. That's my boat. Now we're going to do some serious bone fishing, said Kendall. I'll be here at dawn to pick you up. The next day was long and exciting. They hooked three bonefish, and Danny felt that he had fulfilled one of his fishing dreams. The power of a bonefish racing the line tested a man's endurance and fishing skills to the utmost. It was like the rush he felt when he played lacrosse. He and Todd slept well that night, the kind of deep sleep you get after extreme physical exertion. Danny woke up after 9 a.m. We're out of beer, he announced with a groggy voice. We also need some coffee, said Todd. By 10, they were back at the grocery store. Mr. McCain is at the counter. How you boys doing? Great. You catch some fish? Three bonefish and a grouper. Good eating, that grouper. Kendall's going to bake it, said Danny. We need some beer and limes. Todd adds, and some conch chowder. Emily's in the backyard preparing some now. Mr. McCain walks to the back screen door. Emily, we need a quart of conch chowder. Emily is bent over a large, blocky wooden table. She's dicing onions and tomatoes on a cutting board. There are strips of meat piled next to the board. I'll get to it when I can, she said in a tone of irritation. About 15 minutes later, she shuffles into the store carrying a quart-sized plastic cup and hands it to her brother. Best conch chowder in the Bahamas, announces Edwin McCain. Here, take a bite. He opens the lid and hands a plastic fork to Danny and Todd. Damn, that's delicious, said Danny. That's what I've been praying for, said Todd. The rest of the day was spent relaxing. The conch chowder was quickly consumed, washed down with cold beer. They slept through the afternoon and then cooked the grouper marinated with lime. By nine, they were out of beer. It's about time for another beer run, said Danny, with an obvious buzz. And conch chowder, said Todd. But it's almost ten. The store closed at five. They're probably sleeping. Well, let's wake them up. Our money is as good at ten as it is at noon. Are you kidding me? I'm tired. I'm not going anywhere. You can't go bothering people in a village like this at ten at night, said Todd. Sure I can. Danny staggers outside of the golf cart. He turns on the ignition and speeds down the rocky driveway, turning on the road to the village. 
The wind is blowing hard. The houses along the road are dimly lit. Danny stops the cart outside the store, leaving it on the road. He staggers to the door, peering through the window of an unlit empty store. Hey, open up. You got a customer, said Danny, pounding on the door. His voice is drowned by the wind. He continues banging on the door, but no one answers. I want some beer. I need beer. And Todd needs conch chowder. Danny sees that the store has two stories and thinks that the McCains probably live upstairs. He peers up at the second-story window and sees a small sliver of light through a crack below a window shutter. He wraps his hand around the porch column and shimmies up the post, pulling himself onto the balcony. Going to the window, he turns the shutter's latch and pulls the shutter open with tremendous force. The shocked look on the faces of Emily and Edwin McCain will be immortalized in his brain for the rest of his life. They're standing naked in the bedroom. What appeared to be large bulbous humps on their backs were giant conch shells, each attached to the McCain's back, attached by a thick rubbery ligament that runs down their spine. Their shock soon boils into anger. Edwin raises a wooden cane and smashes it on Danny's head. He collapses to the floor with what was a fatal wound. Edwin turns to his sister. It's your turn to do the cleanup. I'm going to go move his cart. The next morning at 7 a.m., Kendall pounds on Danny's cottage door. Todd, half asleep, comes to the door. Hey, man, what happened to my cart? demands Kendall. What's, what's happened? I just woke up. They found my cart at the foot of the cliff. What the hell did you do to my cart? I don't know what you're talking about. I've been asleep. You owe me $6,000 for my cart. Danny took the cart into town last night. Let me get him up. Hey, Danny. Todd opens the bedroom door. The bed is empty. He's not here. He never came back. Maybe he's hurt. Ain't no one down there in those rocks but my cart. Kendall, I don't know what happened. He went to McCain's store last night around 10. We've got to find Danny. Will you take me to the McCain store? Maybe they saw him. Okay, man. I'm cooling down, but somebody's got to pay me for my cart. In 20 minutes, they were at the store. Edwin was behind the counter counting cash in the register. Todd said, Did you see Danny last night? You mean your friend? said Edwin. Right. He said he was coming here last night to get some beer. I never saw him. Kendall interjects. That boy has disappeared. My cart is wrecked at the foot of Henson Cliff. He must have driven off the road. Well, that's a shame, said Edwin. He sure didn't get here. Maybe your sister saw him, said Todd. No, she was with me. I just want to ask her, insisted Todd. She's in the backyard making conch chowder. Edwin led the way to the backyard. Emily, that young man who came in yesterday has had a terrible accident. They found his cart wrecked off the cliff, and they can't find him. Emily looked up expressionless. That's a God-given shame about your friend. Maybe the sharks took him out to sea, Kendall said. Why, you sure got quite a pile of conch meat there. On the table were two bowls of onions and tomatoes. Piled high were fresh strips of meat. Lying next to the meat was something shiny and golden. Todd picked it up and recognized Danny's ring with the emblem of Long Island State across its face. Todd's stomach tightened, and he feels faint. 
You know that conch is in short supply. It's nearly extinct, said Emily. Got to use what you got when you get it. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlow Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Here's Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlow Weird Street team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with hashtag SoFloWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlow team in our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlow swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, Katerina Fonte for our SoFlow Weird Street team, and Lisa Pally, PR and marketing for the Miami Book Fair. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs>